So seismicity isn't just earthquakes that cause the cups on your counter to shake or something like that. I have to say the majority of our data we are facing and analyzing are earthquakes, but it actually go beyond earthquakes itself. Like, like nuclear tests we recorded are also considered as part of the seismicity. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm your host, Marion Kilgore. Today we're talking about earthquakes. Later on, we'll talk to Dr. Sarah McBride about how embarrassment affects earthquake drills. But first, we're discussing induced seismicity, or human-triggered earthquakes. Joining me is Dr. Rui Joang, a seismologist and postdoctoral researcher at the University of New Mexico. Through her PhD at the University of Alberta, she witnessed and studied the boost of hydraulic fracturing-induced seismicity in the Western Canada Sedimentary Basin. She worked closely with the geological surveys and published several scientific papers towards understanding the earthquake sources. She has also acted as the session co-chair for Induced Seismicity in recent academic meetings for the American Geological Union and Seismological Society of America. I think we should probably start with some pretty basic definitions. When we talk about seismicity, what does that include? That's actually a good question. Um, so seismicity, it, the word itself represents uh, majority of them are earthquakes, but the broad aspect of this word actually covers all kind of like motions we can record using a seismometer. So that's include even mining blasts or human just walking by traffic. So anything that creates the ground to move got recorded can be identified as seismicity. So um, with seismicity, why is it important to make a distinction between naturally occurring and human-caused events that are recorded? Uh, I think because like for most of the case and our understanding, we treat earthquakes or seismicity in general as a potential uh, hazard, a natural hazard. So that means when we are trying to avoid earthquakes or minimize the risk and hazard it causes, we want, we want to kind of like minimize both the natural earthquake risks and the human-induced ones. Uh, to my knowledge, sometimes natural ones are really hard to predict and control. So we probably have a better control on the human-induced earthquake. And this is why we want to have a good knowledge of that and understand how and why it's taking place in some of the industrial uh, area. Um, and then... Often when people are talking about earthquakes, they talk about the magnitude of an earthquake. What does that describe? The magnitude is defined in multiple ways. It can be defined as local magnitude, surface magnitude, moment magnitude. Uh, it's basically just different type of equations you plug in the numbers. Uh, but that, that sometimes differently with each other, but in general, it's just characterize how big an earthquake is. In other words, kind of like the energy the earthquake is releasing. So for magnitude 6 or above, it's probably going to have enough energy released to damage the facility and affect human living there. 
But for anything below one or two, you probably won't even be able to felt it, just because the magnitude itself is in an exponential scale. So right, so something that's a magnitude two is quite a lot less energetic than something that's a magnitude three. Yeah, that's true. It's almost ten、uh, times smaller. Oh, okay. So, so something that's so from from a two to three is ten times the energy, and from a two to a four is a hundred times the energy. Roughly speaking, yes. Right. Okay. So it's not it's not a linear scale like we're used to in a lot of other situations. Exactly. Um, and. With the sorts of equipment that we have these days, how small of seismic events can we measure? Oh, that's actually a very good question. The ability for us to to record an earthquake can go down to negative magnitudes. When we are talking about macro seismicity, we are facing earthquakes that have negative magnitudes, like minus one or minus two, or even smaller. So. Theoretically, the ability for us to record the smallest earthquake, or if you refer to that as an earthquake, is negative. I remember it's negative nineteen. So it's the energy when you broke your hair, a single hair string. But <laughs> but that, that's not really happening in the real world because there's the 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 major limitation for us to detect and、uh, locate earthquake is not because of the Seismometer or equipment we use is because of the density we have. So you won't be able to record a step,、uh, like a magnitude one earthquake,、uh, when you are beyond one hundred kilometer. So, right. So with seismic monitoring,、um, then the the types of earth movement that we're Detecting depends a lot on whether or not you have equipment nearby. Yeah, the coverage there.、Um, and then once you have a seismic monitoring system in an area, can you actually pinpoint the source of an earthquake, or can or is it more so the general area?、Uh, um. Sorry, I think I have to add up a little bit on the monitoring ability. I just mentioned the smallest magnitude that we can get recorded.、Mm. Uh, the largest magnitude, actually, the minimal magnitude of earthquake to be recorded worldwide is four point five. Okay, but that- because of we have noise and everything, to be more realistic,、um, I would say to be safe, anything above five will be recorded worldwide. Right. So, okay. So that's no matter sort of where the sensor is, you would be able、yes. to feel a mag or record a magnitude five. To pick it up, yeah, you probably won't feel it as a human, but the equipment will be accurate enough to pick it up and get it identified. Right. Yeah. So once you, once you have a variety of monitoring stations, how easy is it from that information to figure out where an earth what caused an earthquake or where an earthquake came from? Uh, you only need two stations to find out, or three stations to find out where is an earthquake. You just draw a circle based on arrival time, and then when the three circles kind of like pinpoint, get 
connected to each other. Sorry, I'm I'm super bad on, on using my word here, but that's the <laughs> theory there. So, uh, but again, that's that's uh, that's something related to how big the earthquake is. If the earthquake signal is picked up for more, by more than three stations, then we are able to locate it, and also able to kind of like back project and calculate what time did it did the earthquake happened. Uh, because for most of the places, we have a velocity model that allows us to to back project the original time of an earthquake. Like a lot of things in life, this depends on how much equipment you've got out there and and where the equipment is relative to whatever was happening. Yeah, that's very true. So as a seismologist, most of our funding goes to the field just to build out the seismic network and to ensure we got enough coverage for the target region we want to study. So getting into the induced part of induced seismicity, mm-hmm. um, the news over the last couple of years has started suggesting, and it's sort of become more and more common to see stories about natural gas fracking and wastewater disposal being um, likely causes of earthquake events. I know Alberta had a couple uh, just in the past few months that made the news. So are these, is induced, is the frequency of induced earthquakes actually increasing with industrial activity or is it just getting more news coverage? Uh, that's a very, very good question to think about that way by just asking that question. I think it's both. So for the first re- reason, are we having more induced seismicity? Uh, the, co- the answer is probably yes. Um, for hydraulic fracturing specifically, this technique was invented like several decades ago, but it just get popular and is broadly used uh, for oil and gas industry in recent years. And uh, I'm not saying there's a big portion of the wells that are associated with uh, with uh, hydraulic fr- uh, with earthquakes, but still we're, we're slight, getting slightly more earthquakes that are induced, for sure. And the second is because of the newspapers, the internet and everything, we're having more media coverage that the public have uh, their interest on this topic. So I would say it's kind of like both. We got more exposure and we do have a little bit more data. So how does something like fracking... I'm, I, I'm used to thinking of, of oil and gas exploration from a very conventional standpoint where you drill a hole, pump out the oil you can get, and... I don't really recall much conversation about earthquakes associated with that sort of activity. So how is fracking interacting with the the ground differently that would cause these sorts of increased shakes? uh, So the way for fracking to work is a well-drilled underground targeting on the oil and gas formation and they increase the pressure locally to create pathways for the oil and gas to flow back. So this technique was was first invented to drill just a horizontal well 
and you can imagine you are just fracking a point if you're looking at the map. But nowadays, when we talk about fracking, for most of the time, we are referring to multi-stage hydraulic fracturing. So the multi-stage one is when we drill towards the target formation to extract oil and gas, we are not only limited to the point. Uh, nowadays, the industry are able to turn the well horizontally to let it extend from, for a few kilometers so we can frack the whole line or create pathway along the line, which allows more oil and gas to flow back from the same or single well. So it's covering just a larger area? Yes, it's kind of like more productive. And uh, the fracking is done by increasing local fracture, lo local uh, pressure to create fractures. And uh, when the fracture open, they actually just like a mini fault, just a slip. It will give you a little bit of seismicity that we call macro seismic. And those are the magnitude negative one or negative two earthquake I'm talking about. Okay, so those, you wouldn't even come close to feeling those on the surface. No, it will only be picked up by the down, kind of like underground equipments. And those are the earthquake that we, we want to create. We, we kind of like in, intend them to happen just because those are the, the we have to have the fractures opened to allow the gas and oil to flow back. When we're talking about um, the actual depth where the oil and gas is, where the fracking is happening, how how deep underground is that? It depends on which formation we are targeting. It can range anywhere from a few hundred kilo, sorry, a few hundred meters to a few kilometers. So quite deep. We're talking well below, you know, freshwater aquifers or anything like that. Yes, especially for Alberta, we are way below freshwater line. For the Duvernay Formation, which is kind of like famous for having a few induced seismicity, uh, its depth is about 3.5 kilometer. Okay. So, yeah. yeah, that's pretty deep. Yeah. Um, so then there's the microquake when they actually start the fracking, and then... I assume they get into the, you know, usual production of pumping up the oil that makes its way to the well. So then how does that lead on to getting what we're, you know, what we've heard about a few times in Alberta, where there's actually a quake that you can feel at the surface? So, like I said, the macro seismicity are the ones that we want to create. The induced seismicity, the ones you mentioned that people feel, are the ones we want to avoid. And uh, those larger magnitude earthquakes are definitely taking place on larger faults. So the faults are definitely not, the faults themselves are def definitely not created by the industry of fracking activity. They probably just sit there. They exist there, there for millions of years already, but someone got triggered by the fracking activity and then moved and then gave you a way larger magnitude earthquake than we expect that end up to be an induced seismicity. So there's, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm used to thinking of 
geological faults, you know, over in BC by Vancouver or Victoria, where there, there's a sort of active earthquake area. But, you know, in Alberta, <laughs> we're certainly not used to thinking of ourselves as having underground faults that might start moving around in Alberta. <laughs> so are these, are these just faults that are inactive and haven't moved before and now they're moving again or what's going on there? Oh, you're totally right thinking about that way. Uh, when we learn about the geology, we only learn about the major faults that can produce magnitude seven, eight, or even larger earthquakes, like the bigger, the, the big one. Um, and the, when we are talking about the faults in the mountains, say along the rocking mountains, those are the major thrust force, like kind of like between continents or, uh, like on a very, very large scale that extend for a dozen kilometers long. Uh, but for the faults that we're looking at for induced seismicity, most of them are also natural, but much smaller. I will give you an example here. So we have experienced a few magnitude 4 earthquakes in Alberta. And to produce a magnitude 4 earthquake, you only need the fault to be one kilometer long. So it's not the major faults that we were talking about in the mountain or along the coastline. It's a geologically relatively small, small, tiny scratch in the crust that we're looking at that creates oh, the okay. induced mistake. So they're, they're on a completely different scale. They're, you know, a tenth of the size. Yes. Exactly. Just because the earthquake magnitude itself is right. on an exponential okay. scale. So with these smaller faults... Um, have they been mapped out like the larger ones have, or are some of these, when they cause a, uh, you know, a magnitude three or four quake on the surface, are those sort of catching people by surprise that there was a fault there at all? Uh, detecting faults are not easy. We need a lot of imaging tools to get the geological survey done, especially for capture faults this deep. Like you're looking at something around four kilometer, but you're looking for a fault that is only one kilometer long. Um, it's definitely not realistic for the geological survey to map all kinds of like the whole geological map on this kind of like detail for whole Alberta. So this is kind of like the negative part of having the small faults, like, it's just it's really, really hard to capture. And the positive part for that I would like to comment is because they are relatively small, uh, you won't expect any major earthquake took place in Alberta. So that being said, like even though we are facing a few magnitude 4 earthquakes, you probably won't say there's a magnitude 6 coming just because it's kind of like physically limited by the size oh, okay. of the faults so, we have. So the fact that they're small means we don't really have them all mapped out but it also means that their 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 potential influence is is restricted okay well that's reassuring yes <laughs> so there's the uh there's the short-lived activity where they first frack the well and cause those cracks to get the oil are the induced earthquakes that are happening 
are they happening at the same time as the fracking activity or can they happen, you know, hours or days later? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, the quick answer to this question is like it varies. It varies from well to well. It varies from activity to activity. So for induced earthquake that caused by hydraulic fracturing, for most of the time, we are seeing almost instant response. So I'm saying time scale on hours or days. Uh, but if we move to central U.S., say Oklahoma, where wastewater disposal is being, has been going on for years, the seismicity rate there increased, likely to be a kind of like overall response to the overall activity. And uh, the time delay there could be up to months yeah, or even so, years. So in the Oklahoma case, they're taking water that got pumped out of oil wells with the oil and, you know, needs to get disposed of back underground and pump. So they're pumping lots and lots of water down these wells. So how are, how is that causing, uh, earthquakes? If you're, if you're just putting water underground, it doesn't seem like, you know, at least with fracking, you're intentionally causing a crack, but if you're just putting water underground, how are you causing an earthquake with that? Um, Regardless hydraulic fracturing or wastewater disposal, there's two major theories that could assist the earthquake to happen. The first one is pressure change. So you're adding mass to the underground, and that's going to create extra pressure for all the surrounding faults and formations. And if it's a fault, there's a fault that's already at the critical stage, the pressure is going to act as a last straw and make that earthquake happen. So you're actually triggering an earthquake rather than fully oh, causing okay. or making so you're just, one. You're, you're that last little nudge over over the edge into earthquake territory. Yes. And I'm just talking about how that could happen by having the pressure kind of like propagate to the fault. Another possibility is like the fluid can migrate, can move around the underground too. And imagine that you have a fault that is already at the critical stage and there's some fluid just goes in to smooth that out, kind of like reduce the friction there. Then the fault could also get easier to move and then end up to be an earthquake. So in that case, it's just lowering the amount of energy that the fault needs to start moving around. Yes, so that's probably the the major two uh, mechanism that we have the induced earthquake induced. Um, so they're not creating these. So these activities, the fracking and the wastewater disposal, they're not creating new faults, right? No, we don't have the energy to do so. <laughs> With these wells, how? How good are we at this point at figuring out whether a particular well or maybe even a group of wells is likely to cause an earthquake that might affect things like infrastructure or homes? Um, I would just start answering this question by 
by telling you how good we are by knowing an earthquake is related yes. to some activity, we need first to identify it is induced and then to yes, work on how there. we reduce the risk. So it's so the way we we can like identify induced earthquakes is mostly based on the spatial and temporal relationship. So it's kind of like make intuitive sense if this place was quiet and then a well is drilled and then an earthquake happened. One will immediately think, oh, could those two be related? And this is actually the way science works. We put the information on our hand together, compare the earthquake data with the injection data, and run some uh, simulative models just to reassure ourselves like to what extent we think those two are related. For example, sometimes uh, for Oklahoma, in, you, you see an increase in the injection volume. And then three months later, you see an increase of right. earthquake rate. Then after you reduce the volume, the rate reduced too. They're kind of like a nice response to all the industry activities. And if they are kind of like within, say, 20 kilometers to each other, they're quite close to you spatially, then you pretty much have an idea that, okay, this is kind of like an induced seismicity. So for Oklahoma, there are kind of like a multiple long-term disposal wells are injecting a m m multiple swarms of earthquakes. For Alberta, for hydraulic fracturing, uh, the story is, is somewhat simple because hydraulic fracturing is only uh, conducted for right. a week or so. And the earthquake swarm will be very localized and also only show up for a, a few weeks or less than a few days and then it will disappear. So we can have a very nice one-to-one -one association. Enough data, there's enough data at this point that you can look at the data and see see the correlations and know that it's not just a random coincidence. Yes, we, we for most of the time, we're able to pinpoint which well caused which earthquake cluster. The next step after we learn if those earthquakes are induced and we are, we are kind of like with some confidence, we can identify induced earthquakes. Then we talk about how we can minimize its risk or how can we avoid them from happening. So the way for Alberta to do so is we have a traffic light system. Uh, the traffic light system is set up as when we have a magnitude around zero, we call that a green light. When it's reached magnitude two, we call that a yellow light. For a yellow light, that means the industry or the uh, the company has to get ready for any earthquake that go beyond two. They have to have a plan uh, or a kind of like strategy to 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 regulate the seismicity there. And if an earthquake uh, beyond or above four take place, that's a red light. So in that case, the associated Fraction well will be shut down immediately to avoid oh, any okay. future so risk. In, in Alberta, at least, the the people operating the wells have to be keeping track of the seismicity and responding sort of on their own. They don't have to get their hand slapped and have the regulator tell them to stop before there's a system that tells them to stop what they're doing. Uh, the regulator is it's kind of like approving all the hydraulic fracturing activity in advance. And that seismic monitoring, I believe, is kind of like part of the requirement 
to have a well drilled. So I'm, I'm pretty sure all the companies are able to identify and pick out a magnitude two earthquake. <laughs> and if anyone, anything larger than that happened, there's some uh, regulation that comes into play. And if it hits magnitude four, it's kind of like definitely a no-no. Everything has to stop until further okay. notice. Yeah, that happened earlier this year. Um, I think there were. Yeah, we have we had like three red light earthquakes today. Are there other ways that humans have been causing earthquakes? Well, it's kind of like related to the uh, hydraulic fracturing or wastewater disposal because uh, for both fracking and disposal, we're thinking about we are just injecting fluid into the ground that causes earthquake. Uh, In some cases, if we are doing an extraction that can like decrease a local pressure it can oh, also induce you, some earthquake so that is kind of like right, oil and gas production you might have had the pressure underground holding a fault in place and then you reduce the pressure and it's easier for it to move yeah so it doesn't matter you're pushing or pulling both ways could work it's just the faults there are very hard to predict but i have to comment here sorry i have to comment here is just even though there are kind of like multiple ways for us to to induce earthquake the overall number of the kind of like fraction for industry activity to cause induced seismicity is very 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 low so even though it seems alarming because you have an area where you know like alberta where we're not used to earthquakes at all um it's really not that many no, I can give you some numbers here. Like, w- I can like walk you through the multi-stage hydraulic fracturing, which is kind of like new in in the in recent years. Uh, even though as an oil and gas province, Alberta, uh, we're looking at the number about a dozen thousand thousands of multi-stage hydraulic fracturing well, mm-hmm. and probably just just less than a dozen or just a few dozen of them has been associated with potentially induced earthquake. Right. So, so that's, that's a rate of like 0.03. <laughs> right. Oh, and, yeah, and the, percent. And they're not likely to be big earthquakes. No, that's not happening. So... So, like, we're looking for induced seismicity. The, the the topic itself is is a very very rare case. I know it seems popular worldwide because, like I said, it's kind of like a media exposure thing. If it's a natural earthquake of magnitude two, you probably won't report it. But if it's induced, then it doesn't kind of like report it and focus everywhere. Yeah, like a magnitude four earthquake out in Vancouver would just get shrugged off and you probably wouldn't read a news report about it. But a magnitude four earthquake in Alberta gets all sorts of coverage. Yeah, it's a relative thing. It depends on how quiet we used to be. Yeah, so an area like California or something like that, would, would it be as easy as it is in a place like Alberta to determine if industry were increasing the the background rate of small seismic events? Because there's uh, already the natural seismicity going on? 
Oh, that's actually a good question. For for California, they have much denser seismic network. Like I said, induced seismicity is kind of like case by case local thing. So I think they'll still be able to tell uh, in Northern California, there's a geothermal field that they believe the geothermal extraction activity has caused some earthquakes there, okay. but probably ranging back to two-ish. So that those are not significant. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but there is a more interesting place that I was just aware of. Uh, it's Sichuan, China. If we move, if we move to Asia, so Sichuan is a province that has a relatively high rate of natural earthquakes already. We know the Wenchuan earthquake in two thousand eight was really devastating. Uh, but in recent years, we are seeing more publication on the induced seismicity in Sichuan Basin too. Oh, okay. What sort of activities are causing that? And they are caused by hydraulic fracturing. Okay. So, a very interesting fact is Alberta used to be, oh, sorry, North British Columbia, Fort St. John used to be keeping the record of the largest hydraulic fracturing induced earthquake worldwide. But this was beat by Sichuan because they, 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 I think a magnitude 4.9 earthquake was induced there, and that's the new record. Oh. I don't know if that's a record you want to hold. No, that's not something that to be proud of. Uh, but it at least to some point proved that this is kind of like a worldwide thing that we are, we need to pay more attention, even though for a region that is already high in natural earthquakes. You have a new well that's going to be put into service to be, to be fracked or for wastewater disposal. Is there any way to predict the risk of that particular well of causing an earthquake? Or is this the sort of thing where we just have to look at sort of bigger statistics? The answer is positive. Uh, there's recent researchers that plug in the injection parameters into the whole equation and are able to give you a rough idea like how much earthquake you would expect for that local kind of like, uh, activity or industry region. So uh, that's something that we are learning how to manage. We There's definitely room for us to improve, but I think researchers are doing that now. So it, we're getting a bit better at identifying specific locations that might, yes. be ris might be riskier than others. Yes, and the industry are always cooperating with uh, academia on this say they they probably gonna try different injection strategy strategies just to see if they can somewhat uh, inject the same amount of water but avoid the earthquake from happening these formations where the oil and gas is are they i guess in in my head and sort of when you see the really simplified diagrams on, you know, news reports or, or uh, press releases. I have this picture in my head that there's like a cavern three kilometers down full of oil. Is that really what it looks like? Uh, it's not full of oil because that's going to be fluid. Just allow the, the ground move around. It's still majority filled with sands and uh, stones. Uh, it's just like, how should I say that? Give me some second. Is it like a sponge, a rock, a sponge made of rock? Yeah, I will, I will more like think that a sponge made of rock. So the, the oil and the gas are just filling the gaps in between. 
So okay. it's not a whole layer sitting there. So when we extract the oil and gas, the layer there won't get empty. It will be still kind of like supported by the stones there that is strong enough to withhold all the pressure below and above. Okay, so we're changing the pressure in the gaps in the rock, but there's still yeah. rock there. Yes, the kind of like the skeleton sitting there holding the whole uh, system there. Uh, so extracting the oil and gas affects the local pressure, but it's not like removal all the removing all the mass from there. It's, it's a whole different story. So we're just squeezing a little bit of liquid out there. Right. Okay. From the sponge. Are there are there other interesting aspects of these induced earthquakes that I haven't asked you a question about that you think we should talk about? Um, I think it's just a few interesting facts just to know that induced earthquakes are going around. Um, actually, for North America, we're always looking at fracking and wastewater disposal because that's the two major reasons for Oklahoma and Alberta. But if you look at the global scale, uh, mining is actually the major region that caused most of the induced seismicity. Oh, okay. Just from, is that from blasts or collapses or all of the above? I think it covers all the aspects. So it's kind of like a whole category that covers everything. But most of them are kind of like underground mining, because if you're working on the surface, you probably won't induce anything. Uh, for Alberta, yes, we are, we are facing a lot of hydrofracting induced earthquakes because we don't really have that amount of injection volume compared to Oklahoma. We are kind of like a magnitude lower than Oklahoma. Right. And with Oklahoma, my understanding is that's just because when they extract oil, there's a lot of salt water that comes with it. Yeah. And we just have less of that in Alberta, I guess. Yeah. But the reversed statement won't be true. So for Oklahoma, even though it's kind of like famous for having the wastewater disposal induced earthquake, there's also a number of hydraulic fracking induced earthquake too. Ah, okay. So they got a more complex story than us. <laughs> right. They sort of got the worst of both worlds. Uh, yeah. The bright side is they, they kind of like learned a lesson since 2013. And the, both researchers, industries, governments are putting efforts in minimizing the risks there. Uh, so the seismic rate is actually going down in recent years. Oh, okay. So it's getting better. Um, this is why, uh, even though I research on these earthquakes, I'm not super concerned about this topic. Like, I don't really go out and talk to people, oh, this is a big deal. You better don't buy home in Oklahoma. You should move out from Alberta. I'm, I'm, I'm not super concerned about the seismicity right there. I think it's more like something that was scientific interest, but shouldn't be treated as kind of like something evil. The industry just created and we should just against and judge them the researchers and regulators and operators are are all very motivated to change their practices enough to bring the risk down yes and we are collaborating alberta is probably well the best place for this type of collaborations speak about sharing data 
between the industry, government, and universities. Like if you have the data shared, it's much easier for you to diagnose the problem and get things on hold. Yeah. So do for um for you know if a company is going to go out and drill a well, I I I assume they do their own due diligence with geological surveys. But are they mostly working off common? Sort of public maps of faults, or do companies each have their own maps? Or I'm not even sure how fault maps get built. I guess is my question. How does that work?、Uh, they have their own fault maps, and those are confidential. Just because、uh, when the faults are imaged, the reservoirs and all the targeting formations are imaged too, and those are the resources they use to make money. So they cannot share that with all the companies and all the government. Okay, so there's there's a commercial reason for if a company, you know, does their own survey and locates a fault, they're not. Yeah. That doesn't immediately become public knowledge. Yes, it's um uh it it is because they're like conflict interest thing. They have to make it confidential, and it's. It's also true for the seismic data. They do the seismic monitoring not only for the seismic risk. Sometimes they want to learn how good their fracking work. Ah,、uh, where where they need to frack more. They want to pick up the macro seismicity to 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 know how good they are working for getting the oil and gas out too. So from that aspect, the the industrial monitoring. The seismic data from the industry is not always available to all the researchers and public, but this is some problem we can we can play around through collaboration. Ah,、uh, sometimes it's only confidential for a year. After the year, after they have they have the flowback, they will release the data and share that with the government or the university for research purpose. And、uh, for the special cases where the red light earthquakes happen, for the magnitude four earthquakes,、um, I think it's part of the regulation、uh, rules that they have to release the data. Okay. So if you think about that way, we are actually in the same shoe that now was when the magnitude four earthquake happened. Yeah, I'd imagine the companies don't want it because it, you know, people start getting antsy and it and it and brings attention to them and it might interrupt their extraction activities. So they don't want an earthquake, and of course the public doesn't want earthquakes. So everybody's motivated to make sure they stop. Yeah, and this is, I guess, this is partially why they the industry also share data with the government and the researchers. So we are the free laborers to help them figure out how to avoid them. <laughs> are there are there any areas where there are none of these small faults that could cause earthquakes, or is it just everywhere on the planet is going to have something? Um. I would say the Earth's crust is like your skin. You probably won't have a scarf that obvious, but if you really zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, your skin is never smooth enough. Right. So this is the Earth that we are looking at, and、uh, at, for the scale of、uh, 
of fault does it have a length of about one kilometer? It's probably almost everywhere. So the key problem for us to solve is, is not only to map the faults, but to evaluate the faults, to know whether it is at the critical stage. Is that safe for us to operate around it? And uh, like, like I said, for majority of the cases, it won't slip. So thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, I like this. You can learn more about Dr. Wang and find links to information about induced seismicity at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up, Dr. Sarah McBride is an emergency management specialist. After completing her media studies doctorate at Massey University in Wellington, New Zealand, she accepted a Mendenhall Research Fellowship with the United States Geological Survey, where she examined science communication, earthquake forecasts, and emergency preparedness. Thanks so much for speaking to me today. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Marion. So you recently worked on a paper uh, that looked at earthquake drills in New Zealand and how people responded during those drills. What is an earthquake drill? So the earthquake drill that we're talking about is, is called the Great Shakeout or Shakeout in New Zealand. Um, and it started back in 2008 as a part of a massive scenario science project around an M7.8, a magnitude 7.8 earthquake in um, Los Angeles. And as part of the scenario and part of the research that people did, particularly Lucy Jones, Mark Benthian, some of like really fantastic scientists. So over a hundred scientists worked on this scenario, right? Uh, and what they found was people needed to be doing earthquake drills regularly to develop what we would call, um, procedural knowledge, knowledge that is built through performing a procedure over and over again, like a drill, um, or, you know, like muscle memory basically. Uh, so what they found was that they needed to do something in combination with the scenario. So they created what we, what is a volunteer earthquake drill for Southern California called the Great Shakeout. It started in 2007 and 2008. Then in 2009, New Zealand on the West Coast of New Zealand uh, had a regional shakeout event. We, they copied it and they performed it as well. And there was a plan to make their, make it be a national shakeout drill to replicate what had been done in the United States, uh, working with the people who had done the great shakeout. Uh, but then 2010 happened with the Darfield earthquake and then the Christchurch earthquake, which was very damaging in 2011. And so New Zealand had to wait until 2012. And then 2015 was the, the drill that they did three years later, which is what the, the paper is about. But essentially an earthquake drill is, when you have a particular time, uh, usually it's 11 a.m. or 10 a.m., and your community, your school, your company, your organization, whoever you work for um, or wherever you're at, you basically pretend like there is an earthquake and you do the action of drop, cover, and hold. So uh, just a little bit of clarification. In New Zealand, they say hold. In the United States, we say hold on. Yeah, so what... When I was reading your paper, one of the things I didn't realize was that earthquake or advice on how to respond if you feel an earthquake had changed since I don't even know when I learned the steps because Alberta's not really big on 
earthquake drills or earthquake preparedness. But um, so sheltering in doorways, it looks like, is no longer one of the recommended steps. Absolutely not. So what should people do if they feel an earthquake? So the main thing we recommend is, is drop, cover, and hold. And because the, the bulk of the injuries that occur nowadays are from people moving while shaking. They trip over things, things fall on top of them, or they're trying to get out. So the most important thing is to drop where you are and then get under something that's solid, like a table or a desk if you can. And if there isn't a table or desk available, just drop, curl yourself into a little ball, cover your head. That's a, it's a pretty simple, uh, pretty simple protective action. And there's a little bit more to it in terms of different spaces that you can, you know, that, that you can get to. Um, and, you know, whether, you know, what you do outside is a little bit different from what you do inside. Uh, there's definitely recommendations, uh, if you have a disability, if you're in a wheelchair, if you have a walker, there's recommendations in that. And those are in the paper. Um, and uh, that that's in um, one of the figures in terms of what to what to physically do in different locations. And if you have um, you know, disability or fragility uh, issues. So that's pretty much an earthquake drill. It's, a, it's meant to be a communal drill. And the reason why it's meant to be done together is there's a, a product of. So when we. So have you ever been in a room where a fire alarm went off? Yes, I have. And And, and what do you do? What's the first thing you do? At work, I'm part of the uh, emergency response team. But uh, yeah, before I got that training, definitely the first thing I did was look around and see what everybody else is doing. Precisely. So that process uh, is known as milling for information. And when we're looking at each other, it's what we call social milling. So we're looking at each other to see what we should do next. We're trying to find the confirmation for, for what's going to occur, for what should happen. And typically someone who has training, like yourself, would be the first person to stand up and say, all right, everyone, we know what this is. Now let's everyone get out. And then you evacuate the room because that's what you do socially, right? You, you mm-hmm. go and you work together. And so we know that people do protective actions, which is what the drop, cover, and hold movement is, or, you know, leaving a room due to a fire drill. We know that they do those, that we take those actions based on the social cues that we receive from others. So that's why the the shakeout drill is done on a communal level. That's why it's done in a social setting is because we want people to become familiar with doing this with each other and that this becomes the social norm of of protective actions for people to take. Uh, What did you do to investigate how people responded during the drill? So we really thought about like, how can we actually study this? Because of course we can do surveying. And surveying is great. But often with surveying, people do kind of tell you what they think you want them to think they think, right? So I'll just let you sit with that one for a second. <laughs> um, and and surveying is great. And we, we use surveying for evaluation all the time. But we actually thought, well, wouldn't this be an interesting exercise to do an observational piece of research? Now, observation as study comes from the field of anthropology. Uh, so we sort of lovingly borrowed from our anthropologist friends the method, but then we also added an element to having um, what we would call citizen science or participatory science. People, we asked people in the community around New Zealand to become observers, to observe each other doing the actions, and then report back uh, what they observed to us so that we could analyze what people were actually seeing out in the field um, and, and, you know, in their homes, in their community halls, 
in their schools, in their churches, in their places of work? Were they were people actually performing the drill? And that's the question we wanted to know. And I think one of the things about this study, and I did this study very early on in my social science career in 2012, we really thought we were going to get 200 or 300. We didn't know how many people were going to respond. We didn't think a lot. And the first day of ShakeOut, we had an email uh, access, we had a fax machine, we had a survey monkey, and we had mail. And the first day we received 700 faxes. We received... <laughs> And I didn't even know that people still had fax machines in New Zealand. We received so many faxes. We received um, uh, we received over 5,500 responses in the first year alone from people who were just so excited to be able to share their observations with us as scientists. And we thought, wow, this is amazing that we had so many people who were interested in doing this project. And then we ran it again in 2012, and we got over 3,000 respondents the next time. And so... Uh, we're like, wow, this is a fantastic data set um, and uh, the people are providing us their observations. And it was a very large data set for, for social science, for in terms of social science data, uh, which took us a while to analyze. Uh, and so that's why the paper um, was 2012, 2015, and now it's, you know, 2019. Sometimes data sets take longer than others. The people who sent in the responses, did they get did did you interview them at all, or was it just solely by what sort of responses they actively sent into the researchers? It was solely by the responses that they actively sent into the researchers. There was a follow-up survey that was done a year later to determine retention, and that's another researcher's piece of work. Uh, her name is Laura Vanell. She's publishing a great paper on it. Um, um, you know, so that that's that piece. Um, but we really focused on what people volunteered in this um, in this form. Uh, that was that was the data set that we really we focused on analyzing. What were some of the reasons that uh, people observed for other participants not participating in the drill or maybe not participating with the proper actions in the drill? So we were quite surprised because we thought that the number one reason would probably be disability or fragility, you know, age. Um, you know, we, we really didn't have a handle on why people wouldn't want to do it. But both in 2012 and in 2015, uh, of the responses that we analyzed um, and that, that were provided answers for, embarrassment was the number one, uh, both in 2012, 2015. So 42% of those people who answered questions answered that they interpreted others did not do the drill because of embarrassment. And then it went down to 37% in 2015. Were you a bit surprised that embarrassment was such a strong factor in people's responses? Totally. I was completely surprised, actually. And and as a researcher, I love being surprised. I mean, I know that we're supposed to have really strong hypotheses and have a you know, pretty good sense of how, how it's supposed to go. But because this is the first study of its kind on ShakeOut, we really didn't have a sense of what it was going to be. So yeah, embarrassment was a very was a pretty surprising uh, finding for us. And then disability was number two, and then age fragility was number three, and then um, did not have a place to drop, cover, and hold on uh, was number four, and then restrictive clothing. Uh, we also provided another category um, where people could provide 
they could provide open text to answers. And this was the part of the study that was, was a real interesting part for me was because I was the qualitative researcher on this. I went through uh, comment by comment, uh, coding all of the content multiple times. When we analyzed the other component, what we found out is that children, um, caretakers who are looking after kids, really struggled during the drill because they were looking after children. And this is teachers, this is parents, um, and uh, and then working was another one uh, that was the next one. And then people just not taking it seriously, not wanting to, people who had real recent earthquake experiences, particularly people in Christchurch noted that they just didn't want to do it because they already were traumatized by the earthquake and they didn't want to talk about it. Uh, weight concerns, uh, people with high body um high body mass index. So really getting into that qualitative rich data was a, a, a great opportunity for us to take a look at what embarrassment might mean. And embarrassment certainly is the, the dominant one, but also the many other reasons that we hadn't really thought of as researchers. Uh, our, our respondents provided us, uh, which was an amazing um, response from that commute, from our community to let us know what we weren't asking. So with the results of this study and and the 2012 study, uh, what sort of changes to how earthquake preparedness is communicated to the public do you think should get incorporated or that will be seen down the road? Yeah, I think it's always really hard uh, in terms of knowing exactly how your data is going to be used and how people are going to interpret um, how, how they're going to use it. I think one of the things I, you know, I would hope to see is maybe a bit more humor, a bit more lightness. Uh, use humor is a great way to diffuse embarrassment. And we know that from the research. Uh, and so having, you know, campaigns that are a little bit more, you know, like, hey, it's okay to get under the desk, don't be embarrassed kind of things. And, and so making that accessible. And I think, you know, one of the messages we haven't given to caretakers of children uh, which is done on airplanes frequently is, you know, make sure to cover uh, your face with a, the mask first to look after yourself and then look after the person next to you. What would you like to see studied further with earthquake drills and the sort of emergency preparedness? Uh, you know, I'd really love to look at CCTV footage of people doing the drills because we have people reporting what they saw. But I would really like to see what a camera saw, for instance. And then I'd also like to be able to ask participants what they were thinking and what their impressions were while this was going on and, and you know, give us that real feedback of being in that, that drill and being in that environment, I think is really critical. You know, the, obviously I'm really excited about Lauren's paper that's coming out. I think demographically, I think I'd like to see, um, going forward, the observation project look at the different demographics, which we didn't ask for that. 2012 and 2015 survey. All right. I believe you have to run, so I'll let you go. But thank you so much for managing to squeeze me in today. Thank you so much for your time, Mary, and I really appreciate it. You can learn more about Dr. McBride and find links to her work at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back next week with more Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. 
and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 